You're listening to a 58 Ember production. This week, we are discovering how Tyson Foods is partnering with insect ingredient company Prodix to scale the production of insect ingredients. We're also dishing on a few sexy celebrities who have a secret talent in the kitchen, as well as discovering how French farmers are protesting with manure, a potent symbol of agriculture grievances. Welcome to Discover Ag, where food meets pop culture. I'm your host, Natalie, a cattle rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And we are bringing you the top stories that Natalie mentioned in the food and ag space. And we are also ending this episode with one of our interviews with Medjean. Medjean, you've probably never heard of it, but it is revolutionizing technology for vaccines in the animal health space. And this interview was absolutely fascinating. The way they describe it is like a Curic coffee maker, where you are able to create different vaccines for different animals by simply inputting different types of genes. And so I know it sounds really crazy and like far-fetched, but it's an interview you're going to want to stick around for because there is so much going on, I feel like, in the news and space around vaccines and animal health. Yeah, I really enjoy when we can bring conversations like this to the podcast because I think it is beneficial for both our ag discos and our non-ag discos. You know, if you're in uh, agriculture industry. I think you have your pulse on what's going on within the, uh, vaccinations and, you know, animal welfare. And so it'll benefit you to tune in from that standpoint. And then for all of our non-ag listeners, I think this is probably one of the areas that you have a lot of questions about when it comes to our industry. And so it's just really fun to bring this conversation to both sides and hopefully both sides enjoy listening to it. Speaking of our non-ag listeners. We got the coolest DM this week that made me smile and chuckle a little bit. And it was from a non-ag person who listens to Discover Ag. And she passed by, she was driving in the car with her husband and she passed by a Case IH dealership. And she was like, oh my gosh, Case IH. And her husband was like, what do you know about tractor dealers? And she was like, I listened to Discover Ag. And it made me so happy to just like have that crossover, I guess. And and so it made me want to say, if you're a non-ag disco, we want to hear from you. What do you love about us and this podcast and what we're sharing about agriculture? Yes, please um, pat our back, toot our horn. Tell us what you, <laughs> tell us what you love <laughs> <Please> about us. <do. laughs> yeah, so we can keep uh, dishing it out every single week. Well, now that Thanksgiving's over, I feel like it is full on Christmas season. And we, with Christmas season... Since last year and now this year, Christmas season actually means that we are headed to the NFR. So I'll, I'll be seeing you. I know it is Luke's 40th birthday. And so that is what he wanted to do this year is a big NFR shebang, which will be fun because I did NFR last year with you and one of our friends, but I have never done NFR with my husband. And so I'm excited. We have a really fun group going and we are going to just have the best time. I will say though, you mentioned that it is Christmas time now that Thanksgiving is over. And a little fun fact about my husband and how he likes to ruin my life at this time of the year. (laughs) He has November 30th birthday. (laughs) So he refuses to have any Christmas decor, music, focus until after his birthday. And so I cannot put up decorations. I cannot lean into my holiday spirit. I cannot spread joy. And it kills me a little bit on the inside. I'm so sorry for you. By the time this episode comes out, you will be able to celebrate Christmas. So you're only a couple days away. You can do it. I need the discos to cheer me on with this, you guys. I could make it a few more days without the Christmas spirit. 
And before NFR, I'll actually be seeing you as well. I am headed to Iowa this week to give a keynote speech at the Farm Her uh, Summit. And I'm so excited about the Impact Summit. And you are sweet enough. You are driving five hours over to come and see me. Are you picking me up at the airport? Good question. Yeah. I will pick you up at the airport, but <laughs> I will say last night <laughs> I had a brief moment where, I mean, there's snow here, it's cold, and all I want to do is just stay home. And I was thinking, what would Tara do if I just bailed <laughs> completely last minute on her and didn't go? But I think I'm fully committed. So I will be there to get you at the airport and uh, cheer you on the next day. I'm actually really excited to listen to your keynote. I've never heard it, and I am really pumped to be in the audience. Yeah, I feel like the pressure's on for me to like deliver. So I'm going to be practicing for the next 24 hours getting ready. So if you change your mind, I get it. I, I kind of had a feeling. I was like, gosh, that's a long way. But nonetheless, hopefully I'll see you in 24 hours. Getting right into this episode, uh, we want to thank our sponsor, Case IH. Case IH isn't just built by farmers. It's sold and supported and serviced by them too. The men and women at your local Case IH dealerships understand what it takes to overcome the challenges of farming because they do it every day, just like you, which means they're the right people to help you find the equipment you need. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to learn more. Case IH is built by farmers. And before we dive into our articles, we want to remind you guys to sign up for our Club Discover newsletter. It is now a weekly newsletter. We are putting time, energy, and effort into it to really serve you, the disco community. We're bringing you all of our favorite discoveries, essentially, of the week. What we're listening to, reading, watching, eating, cooking, wearing, all the things. It will be short and sweet and well worth your time. So hit the link in the show notes and join us over on Club Discover. And then if you could take a moment and leave us a review, it would mean so much to us. Uh, Share us on your social channels and just help spread the Discover word. All right, you guys, getting into our articles. We have good ones this week, too, so this will be fun. Uh, Our first article to discover this week, headline, Tyson Foods Partners with Insect Ingredient Company Prodix. Tyson, a major U.S. producer of beef, pork, and chicken, recently came out and said that it is invested in Prodix, a Netherlands-based insect ingredients maker. Tyson announced they will be taking a minority stake in the company, but also working alongside it to build a U.S. factory that will use animal waste to feed black soldier flies, which will then be turned into food for pets, poultry, and fish. So a little bit of background. I think the reason this was like making the news more so is because people are like, oh, Tyson, you know, the big food. I think I read that one out of every four grams of protein in the United States comes from like a Tyson animal factory, like whatever you want to call it. Like they are, you know, a big player in the animal protein space. And so here they are like investing in insect. But it's not that surprising if you know the history of Tyson. I feel like they invest in all sorts of like alternative protein options. So it wasn't really much of a surprise for me. No, uh, I wasn't surprised by it totally either um, from the standpoint you just talked about. But also one of the things which Luke and I talk a lot about actually when we talk about kind of as you mentioned the monopoly of these packers is that you have to do something with the excess, the quote unquote waste, even though it's not waste, but here in Western industry, you know, the stomach, the liver, the tongue, all those things that we don't normally consume, you have to do something with it. And that's essentially what they're doing here. So there is a quote from, I believe is the CEO. He said, one feature of being in the animal protein business is having to figure out how to drive value from waste. So he said, we saw this opportunity as an extension of our existing business. 
Yeah, I saw another quote that was commitment to building a more sustainable food system for the future and kind of building on what you said that it is that like you mentioned it in your headline that they're taking like waste and like feeding insects with it. And then essentially they're turning it into animal feed. Uh, There is obviously insects for insect protein for human consumption as well. But this factory, it seems like it's going to be focused more on animal feed, whether that be aquaculture, pet food, livestock feed. Like there's so many options for being able to um, feed insect protein to animals. And I think actually that's like where I am like pretty positive about the story. I think that it's a great option for different types of animal feed. Yeah, I will say this is actually what I thought you were going to say in the beginning when you said, I think this is why this is trending in the news. Because when you see the name Tyson, I think a lot of us automatically go to food, right? Chicken is the first thing so many of us think of. And so when you pair Tyson right next to crickets, you immediately think human consumption. So I thought that's probably why this was trending a little bit is because people were going to be wondering what Tyson was doing, you know, investing in like, how are we going to be eating this in Western culture? But as you said, I think it's important to note that Tyson is not doing this for human consumption. They stated that multiple times throughout this inter- or article, not interview, Um they're really focused on it more from the application with insect protein than consumer. Yeah, a little bit about the plant actually of it itself. It's a first of its kind like at scale facility. It is massive. It is a huge I don't even know. I mean, it's a huge building, but it's like a factory, right? That's going to be pumping out these insects and it'll be in an enclosed system to support all aspects of the insect production. It kind of, I don't know what this is where it gets like creepy crawler for me, but it's for breeding, incubating and hatching insect larvae. And all I could think of when I was reading that is one time I was on a panel with a woman who was a cricket farmer. And she, when she first started out was had her cricket farm in her basement. And she talked about how sometimes they would get out into her house and it has scarred me for life on the insect market. I'm not going to lie. I thought this was something I'd have to deal with more being a boy mom like insects and bugs, but I actually haven't. And I'm so glad because like you said, it just gives me the, you know, just makes your spine tingle a little bit when you talk about these things. I will say another positive reading this article was that Hyson is doing this as a U.S. facility um, factory. And I don't know if they are overseas at all, um, actually. So I don't even know if it's a possibility for them to have made this overseas. But I mean, they are partnering with this company that's in the Netherlands. So it could have been an option to do it there. And so I do really like and am grateful that Tyson is at least keeping this on U.S. soil and kind of I don't know how big it will be, but I do like that it's remaining here. One thing about the insect market that I thought was really cool is it is expected to grow to a $10 billion market by 2030. And no less than 30% of chefs expect to see a considerable rise in consumers asking and demanding insect proteins on the menu. So kind of transitioning from animal feed to food for people. um, that's That's a big uptick in where we could see insects in the very, very near future. Yeah, I honestly don't know if I believe that. No, like, you don't really. think so? No. Who is going to be asking for cricket proteins to be sprinkled on their, <laughs> I don't know, salads or food or eating? I don't know. No. <laughs> 
not my not my table. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I could totally see like New York and like LA restaurants trying to be like one upping and like being like I mean, we talked about like the grocery sure, store last week. I just feel like people are going to be like it's the cool new thing to do or try just similar kind of similar to like I don't know, the lab-grown meat or even the plant-based proteins and all of those. Like it's just something different you can like throw out on your menu. Yeah, I guess I could see restaurants or food companies maybe trying to bring this forward, but I feel like that's where it would stop. I just don't see consumers running with this and ordering it, even if it was on the menu. I think there's way too much cultural biases around like fear of insects, disgust of insects. And it's interesting though, because when you cross overseas, there are so many other continents that and countries that are really utilizing insects as a major protein source. And I don't know if we want to dive into that, but it is a really good protein and lipid source. And I do think going back to what you said in the very beginning, it does solve some of the problems related to, you know, our quote unquote conventional food supply chain that, you know, people like to bring up and have issues with. Yeah, I think there is a lot of positives as far as incorporating it in lots of different ways. Like it doesn't just have to be food for people. Um, Maddie actually brought up a good point in the chat. Are insects considered vegan? Hmm. I don't know. Would they draw the line at insects? I'm not sure. Great question. Someone write in. Leave us. Someone DM us and let us know if insects are considered vegan or not. A disco to the rescue. (laughs) I do love that our disco community has so much value to add. They always leave the best messages. They're DMing us the best comments. You guys are just the best. They're just showing up for us. All right. Before we move on to our next article, we're going to thank another amazing sponsor, Ringers Western Wear. Natalie and I both just placed our winter order. And I'm like kind of mad at you about it because you placed your order but didn't CC me on the email. And so I don't know what you ordered. And so then I felt like I was like going in blind just or I I had such a long list. I kind of wanted to see what you got and what you got for the kids and for Luke. And you did not disclose that to me. So I have a bone to pick with you about that. I will say I'm excited to share this order that you do not know what I'm, what I'm receiving because I actually went a little rogue and I didn't buy a ton of stuff for me, but I did a lot of stocking stuffers for Luke and Jax. They had some amazing, I had never spent time in the accessories, like, you know, toggle of ringers. It's always been in selfishly my clothing and Luke's clothing, but they have killer accessories. I got some really awesome stuff and I'm excited to put both large and small in the guys' stockings and Christmas. So I'm going to do for sure a pretty bug, pretty big unboxing. I don't know if I'll turn it into a reel or if it'll be on my stories or what I'll do with it, but I'm really excited about what is coming in my order. Yeah, I just shared um, a post that showed their athletic wear and it made me want to order even more athletic wear, which I did. I put in an order for another pair of pants and, or leggings and sports bra because I absolutely love them. If you guys want to check them out too, you can go to us.ringerwestern.com, fill up your cart and use the code DISCOVER to save. That code is exclusive to our listeners. So use code DISCOVER to do all of your Ringers Western wear shopping. 
Another sponsor for today's episode is Vote. They are the silversmiths and the iconic silver brand of American West. So some exciting things happening for them before the Christmas season. December 7th, you need to remember that date is the last day for holiday shipping deadline and for NFR. So we mentioned that we are headed to NFR. Well, Vote will actually be at NFR. Natalie and I are going to be hanging out in their booth one of the days and showing you guys bringing um, some Vote jewelry to the Discover Ag stories and to our personal stories over on Instagram. Um, and so again, that's December 7th if you want to get your vote order in. I wish Vote was a sponsor of the podcast every single episode because I just want to tell people about them every single episode. I got a DM a couple nights ago over on Instagram from a husband, which is my favorite DMs to get because they're shopping for their wives and they want help. And I'm like, kudos to you for reaching out and seeking guidance so that your wife gets, you know, the best possible gift. And anyway, he was like, I'm looking for really good silver jewelry. Do you have anywhere you recommend? And I was like, vote, please go to vote. I just need everyone to know to go to vote silver because they're truly my favorite. They have such beautiful designs, the backstory, the family, the company, there's so much to love about them from their quality and also their stance. That's, um, lifetime warranty. So you really can't go wrong gifting vote. Like Tara said, um, get them in before Christmas, gift them to your wife, your sister, your mother, whoever it is, um, and use code discover while you're doing it. One of my favorite things about them is their factories are in old Mexico, which I haven't even said yet. I'm recording live from Mexico right now. Um, on my last day of vacation, we're coming home. Where in the world is Tara recording from today? It's Mexico. If, it, if you'd caught me tomorrow, it would be Iowa. So <laughs> kind of a drastic <laughs> Very change. different climates. <laughs> very different. I'm going to freeze when I get to Iowa tomorrow. Um, oh, Maddie's weighing in. She wants a belt from Vote, which I will say they are incredible. Mm-hmm. The belts are amazing. So as Natalie said, go check out Vote. If you're going to be at NFR, come see us at the booth. Go check out their booth um, and find some really great Christmas goodies and use code DISCOVER to save you some money. All right, getting into our second article to discover this week, title Order Up. These sexy foodies are bringing their own heat to the kitchen with a few signature dishes. This is in People magazine, and it came out with their Sexiest Men Alive uh, magazine, which is really like making waves, probably because like one of the Kelsey brothers was mentioned in um, Sexiest Men Alive. But when I saw this article of Kevin Bacon, who is 65, leaning over his kitchen counter. I was like, oh, we're covering that article. Didn't even read it. Just that was it. That was why I picked it. I was like, mm, this one looks like a good one to cover. Were you a big foot Footloose fan? Um, not How really. I definitely when that came out. I have no idea. Great question. Hmm. I can't believe he's 65, though. Uh, But he has a podcast, too. It reminded me, like, everyone has a podcast. But he learned to cook, actually, when he was a struggling actor in New York. Um, And he and his brother would cook mung, is what they called it, which was basically anything you heat up in a pan. And he said that is still what he does to this day. So that was, like, the opening of this article was about him. But overall, it's about all different, like, quote-unquote, sexy men in the kitchen. So Footloose was released in 84. So we were in fact not alive, but yes, he, um, did you know he lives on a homestead, a hobby farm in Connecticut? No, but I love him even more now. Yeah. So I spent time on his Instagram and he is really thoroughly involved in the kitchen. It is not a facade for people magazine. He has a lot of food 
reels and just a lot of cooking conversations on his page. And he actually recently posted a reel. It's kind of right at the beginning. You guys can go see it. But he was dancing to the Footloose song in one of the barns on his property. And I thought that is so funny. Touche, Kevin Bacon. One of the ones that surprised me was Carson Daly was in here. And you know how whenever you read these articles, it always tells you their age. Carson Daly is 50. That that doesn't make you feel mm-hmm. old. I was like, what? How can he be 50? Wasn't he like just hosting like TRL on MTV? Nope, not anymore. Now he's on the Today Show. How, how times have changed. Well, did you see Dolly Parton the other day on TV? And she's what, 70 something shaking it up there doing still doing her thing. I couldn't. I know you it. sent me a meme that was like Dolly Parton at 77. And it was like me in my mid 30s that it was like huddled yeah. in the bed, like <laughs> not looking well. <laughs> Dolly's like out there shaking it. Going back to Carson Daly, I did love what he added. He said that food is the epicenter of his family's house. He said around four to seven, everything is centered around the kitchen. Kids are doing homework. He loves that they're in and out for sports. He just wants to create an environment that's family friendly and fun. And I thought... Stars, they're just like us. <laughs> <laughs> he also cooked a bone and ribeye, which I really appreciated. I was like, thank you for that. Thank you for a little of uh, the beef in there. Um, one of the ones that surprised me was Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg has two cookbooks. And I found out this week on my family vacation, my sister-in-law actually has one. And she said, it's like a really nice cookbook. And I just, oh, nothing surprises any me anymore about Snoop Dogg. I am dying over this. They highlighted Snoop Dogg and Ludacris. And I do want to spend time on both of them because I feel like there's nothing more female millennial than Snoop Dogg and Ludacris. <laughs> but yeah, uh, like you said, Snoop Dogg has two cookbooks. One is called Crook to Cook and one is called <laughs> Goon with a Spoon. And the Goon, I know, the Goon <laughs> with the Spoon is actually co-written, I guess, or co-hosted with E. 40. E40. Oh my God. They call him Chef Earl. I mean, I'm literally dying. I am 100% ordering this goon with the spoon cookbook. And I guarantee you're right. I guarantee, like your sister in law said, either the crook to cook or goon with a spoon will probably be really good recipes. It's so interesting. Yeah, he said one of his favorite recipes was wings with french fries, which I also loved because it's just like, I don't know. Two cookbooks later, and that's his like go-to recipe is wings with French fries. But Ludacris, on the other hand, um, he actually has a show called Ludacris Can't Cook, and so apparently he's like a terrible cook. His recipe of the day is making tacos, which I'm like, I feel like that's not a recipe. Like everyone can make tacos, Ludacris. It's actually called Luda Can't Cook. Oh, I'm Ludacris. sorry, and I feel like you oh need my to gosh. do the the Luda. like. Can't you just hear? Yeah, your head. <laughs> I feel like we need. We um, should have found a song right now to play. That's what I was just about to say. Anyway, the article was really fun. I'm glad you brought it. I want to highlight one other one because it would not be right of me if I didn't. But Brooklyn Beckham was in there, and you know I'm just a Beckham stan now, so he needs a highlight on the Discover Ag podcast. I'm glad you brought him up because I ha- that was the last one I wanted to cover too. Although I did love Stanley. Uh, Tucci saying pasta every day. Loved that. But uh, Brooklyn Beckham, what is he famous for exactly? That was my question. Just his dad being super famous and his mom too. Yeah. Maddie, what's that called when they're uh, they're famous for being famous? Nepotism? Haley Bieber was wearing the shirt. 
Yeah, Nepo baby. He's a Nepo yeah. baby. He's oh, famous okay. for being a Nepo baby. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. But I will say he's another one that I deep dived his Instagram and he truly is a chef. He is running ads like working with Michelin companies over there or the Michelin, I don't know, organization. I think he was like a host. It looked like on a some sort of cooking show there or cooking like festival. Uh, he has a lot of reels. I mean, he was zesting a lemon and I feel like if you're zesting a lemon... You know, <laughs> you know what you're doing. Like, you know your way around. The yeah, kitchen. you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I also really enjoyed like his highlight because I will say Tad is going to have a lot of bumps <laughs> when he leaves the house and heads out in the real world on his own. But cooking for himself will not be one of them. He actually kind of enjoys a little bit, I would say, for a teenage boy spending time in the kitchen and he's pretty good. He makes a lot of different things. And I actually could see that being like fostered and nurtured more as he leaves and is on his own and has to cook. And so it was just kind of fun. Cause I feel like when I was scrolling Brooklyn's Instagram feed, I could kind of see Tad, like just this, you know, 20 some male enjoying the kitchen. And I don't know, there's something really cool about that. I'm like super proud of Tad. Tad does his own laundry. When you told me that like years ago, I was like, excuse me, what? Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's ready. Yeah. He, he has, He's going to be pretty oh. prepared. <laughs> okay. Well, he'll be he feeding himself and he'll have clean clothes. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know be... if he's ready quite yet. <laughs> All right. Well, he's got a leg up on those two things. Okay. Yes. All right. Before we get into our final episode, we want to thank our last sponsor, uh, Good Rancher. Speaking of all of after talking about insects, I feel like I'm much more excited to talk about great steak. Uh, So some really great things about Good Ranchers. They have some new products for the holidays that I want to talk about. You can go to GoodRanchers.com to check out all of these and use our code discover. But their new products are gift boxes. So it is as we mentioned, Christmas season. And so you can do gift boxes for personal or professional gifting. They do also have a new line of merch, which I have not checked out yet. I was going to go after this and check out what they have. But it is great for all of the meat eaters in your life. Great stocking stuffers. You can also do e-gift cards. And they have a new offer, uh, 10% off on top of our December sale. So Good Ranchers is the place for unique gifts for December. Uh, Gift a one-time box or choose to give a gift that keeps on giving with a subscription to America's Best Meat. So go check them out. Again, that's GoodRanchers.com and you can use our code DISCOVERED to get your American meat delivered. All right, diving into our third article to discover this week. Title, French Farmers Protest with Manure, a Potent Symbol of Agriculture Grievance. In a recent display of agriculture dissent, farmers in France have resorted to a vivid form of protest. They dumped a staggering 300 cubic meters of manure and waste in front of state buildings, reflecting their deep-rooted discontent. The act, although startling, is not unique to the farming community in France. Can I just say, I hate us Americans for being off of the, what is it, like the English standard metric standard oh i know i wish we were on metrics that's like Like, i want to be on their 300 cubic meters i don't know is that a crap ton or not (laughs) i'm sure it's a lot easier than our english system whatever it is i will say homeschooling (laughs) even guinevere was like mom why can't we just use metric it's so much easier than feet and yards and pounds and i was like i know kiddo i'm sorry i don't you were born in america so we just have to make it hard Mm -hmm. here Getting back to this article, we have covered protests more than one time on this podcast. There have been protests in the Netherlands. I feel like there was some going on in Ireland. 
New Zealand, haven't we? I mean, I feel like we've covered a few different things in this world. Um, but I do think it's kind of crazy that the French have a history of dumping manure when they have grievances. It feels very French, like just very dramatic and like over the top to be like, I don't know. You have to go online and see some of the videos. And that is one of the things I wanted to highlight actually in this article is how little media attention it's getting. I had to go on like TikTok and Instagram to actually, I feel like deep dive this and the videos are pretty crazy of what's going on. Yeah. It is so interesting that the French are just bold and very bold. It's like they wear their emotions on their sleeve in all forms of aspect. Uh, we're going to highlight a couple different things because manure isn't the only way they express their emotions. But I really left the article, I guess, thinking that just how not afraid the French farmers are to communicate their feelings. And I don't necessarily think the U.S. farmers would, one, do the actions that the French farmers were, would do. But two, I just don't know if it would be received the same way from our policymakers. I mean, it's very interesting, I think, to take what's going on in this French landscape and try and put it in the middle of a U.S. landscape and just play out the scenario in your head of, like, how would that work out? Yeah, some of the things about this. So there's a number of things going on here. The first was that they're protesting environmental regulations. And so they were taking HoneyVac, which is like a big truck that holds like liquid manure. It's as special as it sounds, I promise. And they were like spraying government buildings. And then there was also protest at some like Burger Kings and different fad fast food places that they weren't using enough French sourced products. And so they were dumping manure out in front of the Burger Kings. So they were just, there was, there was a lot of different layers of this and we can get into all of them. Um, there was also the signs, which we can talk about, but it was pretty aggressive, like how much they were spraying. I don't think it would be well received in the United States at all. I mean, I don't think it was like well received, but like, I don't think farmers would come out good if we did this in the United States. No, it's very interesting. I don't know if I have the gumption myself to do it. If it was in the U.S., like there was a rally where I could attend. I don't know if I I would have it in me to spray a building. I feel like I would feel terrible doing it. <laughs> like I just, I, I don't know. I don't, I guess, connect or relate. I know European policy is a major hindrance to a lot of the nations over there. And that's why, you know, you see the Netherlands protesting and you see France protesting. And so, you know, I don't want to say that if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't be extremely upset and that they don't have a right to do this. But I just don't know if I totally agree with how they handle it. It's funny, too, because in that same article where they were talking about, you know, them dumping manure in front of the McDonald's and Burger King because they aren't using enough French beef, they were quoted as saying it's a high profile, humorous and peaceful way of raising awareness about their predicament. I read the word peaceful and I was like, we have very different opinions of that word. Yeah, I was like, that's a very interesting synonyms to describe your guys' <laughs> actions, I guess. Like, to be clear, if you haven't seen the videos, like, there is one where a loader, which is where the front end bucket of a tractor is, like, picking up manure and, like, piling it so high that, like, you couldn't get out of the door in government buildings. Like, this is, there is, like, not a lot of peaceful things about it. But in their defense, you did say it would be hard to, it's hard to put ourselves in their shoes because 
the regulations that are being imposed on them are at the point that it will like put them out of business, which we saw this in the Netherlands too. The French farmers that they interviewed are like, I will not be able to have a farm anymore. Um, even the farmers that continue farming have to give up 4% of their land. And I mean, you think 4%, but that's 4% of their revenue. Like, I guess I don't know the measures I would go to if somebody was like, basically hindering me from farming anymore. Maybe I would be piling manure across the doors of government buildings. <laughs> the New Mexico milkmaid <laughs> out there, you know, sorting through cow shit. <laughs> um, no, I agree. I thought there was a really good quote from a far- farmer in the article that I think explains a little bit of the emotion and maybe decision-making behind the actions. He said, quote, France's rules on the use of products are constantly changing compared to our EU colleagues, and even more so compared to those elsewhere. When we open our toolbox every morning, there are fewer and fewer left to protect our plants and to help our animals. And I know this is something you and I talk a lot about both in our keynote, is that we do have tools as farmers. You know, every single day we have different things we can work with. And it is frustrating and sometimes not fair, like in this example, when policymakers come in and they remove them because then it's like, well, what do you replace it with? What are you left? Like, what do we have in our toolbox? Are you asking us to build something very big with no tools at all now? And so I do think there is some very realistic, as we both said, frustrations behind these actions that I don't, again, don't know if I know if they warrant it exactly, but I can see why they do it. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes was, we try to respect all the laws, but it's hard to keep up. And another piece of that that the guy went on to say, the farmer went on to say, is that the issue is that all of these regulations that are being imposed on them that are essentially putting them out of business are not being held to all the foods that they're importing. And so, I mean, this is an issue we talk about a lot, but it is the big issue here for me. You are putting your, you know, local farmers out of business and are importing products that you have very little control over the regulations going on there. You're basically outsourcing your emissions to another country. And I mean, thinking about food sovereignty, like they talked about that in this article too, that like, you know, France will no longer, you know, have a local food source. And so their food sovereignty is on the line if they are going to import all of their products. And that is really where like, I think I get so frustrated and wish I could like sit down with these policymakers of being like, to what end are you imposing these regulations and these laws on farmers when you then accept product from someplace else? And I know it's like my soapbox because we talk about this every time that we talk about something like this, but it is just really frustrating. It's like at the heart of it for me. I think another interesting thing that was briefly highlighted in this article that maybe explains also why they're so frustrated, they quoted a farmer saying, quote, we have no idea what the food situation will be like with all of these conflicts that we have either in the Middle East or in Ukraine. And so I do think we have to remember there's a lot going on in the environment around there that kind of leads to that unrest and that just uneasy feeling of questioning concern. And so I think that's part of the, you know, piece of the puzzle that could be often probably not highlighted properly. Moving into what you mentioned earlier, the signs, I think it's so interesting. This is another way, I guess, the French are communicating (laughs) their feelings. Uh, This one feels a little more peaceful. This one I would describe (laughs) as peaceful. (laughs) No one's getting hurt. It's so funny because I feel like in both instances, it's like teenagers having tantrums a little bit, you know, one (laughs) is throwing manure and the other one is playing pranks with 
road signs. But essentially what these French young farmers are doing is they're turning the world upside down with road sign protests. And so they're going across all of rural France and they're literally turning upside down the signs, which I don't, (laughs) I don't know what that does. I guess it makes, you know, government officials have to go out and work to fix it. And it communicates that they're frustrated, but I just think it was funny that they chose that. So I'm not even going to attempt to say like the French slogan for what it is, but the literal translation, Oh, are you going to try it? Yeah, but you can say what it means and then I'll play the French. Okay, the literal translation is the world's turned upside down, which is hence the road signs being upside down. But essentially what it means, the non-literal translation is what is the world coming to? And so that's like the meaning behind the upside down signs. So this is what is written. C'est le monde à l'envers. Ooh. This is a French. Feels so French. So <laughs> I love the French language. <laughs> Me too. It doesn't even feel I mean, it kind of feels like sexy a little bit. Totally. Like, to leave it to the French to make this saying and turning road signs upside down sexy. Yeah, so they're so. putting stickers of that saying on the road signs that they're turning upside down. I guess the last thing I'll add that I thought was really interesting is, you know, I briefly said that this feels to me like teenagers kind of, you know, having tantrums, but they highlighted that the older fellow farmers are as equally supportive of a lot of these actions going on. They interviewed a 52 year old farmer who was, you know, taking his stance and supporting all these actions. And so while I'm joking saying, you know, it's these young farmers, you know, having their chip bits, I feel like it is young (laughs) and old. Like this is the, the French coming together across the industry, united, you know, to express their their frustrations. I'm loving all of your puns that are manure and shit-based. Thank you for those. You're really coming in strong, coming in clutch with those. Oh, man. No, it was a great – it was, um like I said at the very beginning, if you haven't gone on social media, um, we'll share some to our Discover Ag stories so you can see some of the videos. Um, we already shared one reel with some of the images, but we'll share a couple more because uh, it's – I feel like a video is worth like a million words in this case of exactly what it looks like. Um, but yeah, any final thoughts? Au revoir. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's all I have for this week. On that note, do not leave. Do not go anywhere. Stay tuned. Coming up next is our interview with Medjine. uh, And they are getting into, as we mentioned, all things uh, technology in the animal vaccine space. Don't want to miss it. For our interview today, we are talking all about how Medgene is revolutionizing technology for vaccines in the animal health space. And to engage in this conversation today with us, we are bringing on Dr. Gary Bosch. Gary is a DVM and executive vice president of Medgene. He directs Medgene's product and marketing strategy and has a rich history in vaccine national and international leadership coming from experience with Elanco, Novartis, and Pfizer. So welcome, Dr. Gary, to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's, it's good to be here and uh, good to talk to you today. 
Yeah, so we're going to be like really getting into uh, some of the details of vaccines and your guys' technology around them. But before we do that, I want to back up a little bit because I feel like it is 2023 and there's a lot of conversation still happening and has been happening over the last several years about vaccines and consumer perceptions about vaccines. And obviously, I'm kind of talking about the human health side of things. And I don't want this podcast to get off um, on a political start, but I feel like some of that perception is now rolling over into the animal health side of things that people have more and more questions about vaccines, why we're using them on animals, should we be using them on animals? So I kind of want to start there that, you know, as an animal health company, can you share, I mean, both Natalie and I know this, like why vaccines are so important to, you know, animal welfare and animal health. But from your guys's perspective, you know, how important is this? You know, why are we diving into this today? Well, I think uh, when we talk about animal health, it, it's just what it is. You know, the animals deserve a healthy life and a healthy time that they're on the earth, just like humans do. And the best way to do that in the face of diseases is to prevent them. Um, prevention is, is the old saying, prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, we believe in that. I think, uh, you know, the controversy goes even beyond vaccines. The, you know, if you talk about antibiotic usage, it's controversial as well. Uh, but when you talk about um, uh, vaccines, it gets away from, it helps us get away from use of antibiotics in the first place. And then it allows us to uh, really target the diseases that are, in, that are uh, a problem in the herds that we work with and prevent them in the first place because prevention, a healthy animal, even in the livestock industry, a healthy animal has, leads to healthy food. So from our perspective, I think uh, just maintaining health of animals and supporting the veterinarians out there and the producers who are biggest interest is to um, maintain the health of our animals and produce healthy food. I, I think vaccines are extremely important in our industry. Yeah, I really, obviously, Tara and I both support that message. And I just think it's important to us to continue to have that conversation and to continue to put out that message, just because I think we are in a unique landscape right now when it comes to consumers and all their questions about food. Kind of like said Tara said, coming off that wave of 2020, I do think vaccines are definitely more at the forefront of their mind than it ever has been before. So thank you for sharing a little bit of your perspective on that. So one of the neat things about our audience here, you know, our listeners, our discos on the Discover Ag podcast is it's pretty diverse. We'll have people who are within the ag industry that are tuning in, you know, that are producers like Tara and I. We'll have people that are kind of adjacent that are maybe like in the food industry. And then we have true just consumers that are tuning in to get, you know, better connected with their food system and hear from, you know, people that are actually out farming and ranching every day. So for our wide variety um, of listeners, I do think it's important to dive a little bit more into vaccine background. I do think, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation around the end of it, like the use of vaccines. And maybe all of us, you know, across that spectrum are a little bit more familiar with that conversation. But I think a lot of us, whether we're outside of agriculture or inside of agriculture, don't have a lot of experience with the actual, you know, uh, production, manufacture, and maybe regulation of vaccines. So I would love for you to talk about that. Like, is there a governing body? What does it look like to regulate these? And even what does it look like to maybe manufacture and produce them? Well, I think uh, the, the answer to the question is that we are a highly regulated industry in animal health in general and in vaccines. Um, our vaccine 
regulatory body is the USDA, uh, United States Department of Agriculture. The division is the CVB, the Center for Veterinary Biologics. Uh, we are, uh, you know, bound to working with them to produce vaccines that are safe, pure, and in some cases effective. In our case, we, we don't have a claim of efficacy on all of our vaccines, but it's safe and pure. And that is the, the, the hallmarks for the CVB to be able to say that uh, we can produce vaccines in a approved manufacturing method. So what they've approved is, is how we manufacture the vaccines. Uh, the actual manufacturing occurs, I, I would say, um, we're, we're making pig medicine in a, in a hospital is the way I'd put it to you. Yeah, thanks for giving us a little bit of that, that background. Um, I do think that is a misconception in the animal um, health space or just like the general, like even whether it's dairy or cattle, is that there's not like a lot of regulation or oversight. When in reality, there is a ton of oversight and uh, regulation. Uh, so getting a little bit more into actually Medjean, we saw a recent headline that read historic milestone in the animal health care reached by South Dakota vaccine company. And it was really in reference to you guys receiving the USDA license to produce the first platform vaccine for the cattle industry. I personally, all my years in dairy have never heard the word platform vaccines. And so what exactly is that? Why is that such a big deal? Um, we saw a really great video on your website about this, but could you just like delve into kind of what that actually means? Yeah, I, I, I think it's it's uh, very unique because um, the prescription platform vaccine uh, approvals were started, you know, the CVB started saying we will approve prescription platform vaccines and that started in 2018. Um so we've been working on these for quite some time. And what we've got approved now is the ability to use the platform vaccine in cattle. And that is the only prescription platform vaccine that we are aware of that is uh, available for cattle. And the uniqueness of that is that uh, what you can do with this is very innovative. Uh, so what we need to do a prescription platform is a, is a vector uh, which is basically, in our case, a baculovirus vector. And then we insert a gene of interest. And that gene of interest is just a gene segment from a virus that causes a disease. And that gene segment um, allows us to build a vaccine for that disease. So uniqueness is there's not a vaccine out there in the cattle world that we can do that with or a platform that but that platform allows us to interchange those genes of interest so that we don't we use the same controlled manufacturing method the approved manufacturing method for our platform and what's the only thing that's different is we can change the genes of interest in there to address different diseases so we've built and we like to you can look at our website and look at some of the videos there, but we've built the Keurig machine and now we, we can swap out the different capsules to be able to make different kinds of coffee, so to speak. But in this case, it's swapping out the genes of interest to be able to produce vaccines of, of different types for the producer, depending on the, pro, uh, the problem that they're dealing with. Yeah, I did really love that video. I felt like it really, um, for lack of a better word, dumbed it down for me to help understand, you know, what this uh, platform vaccine is. And like you've alluded to a couple of times in the video shares, 
it's essentially like you think of a Keurig coffee pot where the, you know, the machine, you kind of put the pod in and then you can put in different flavors or like the different like genes, as you were saying, and then you can get a different, um, result and, it, and it's just a quick process. So from the way I understand it, that the time is the big component here, right? Like that's the, one of the really big benefits of this. Absolutely. The, uh, in, in the commercial vaccine manufacturing, uh, you know, it takes years to get, uh, years to get a vaccine approved, a new vaccine approved. So if you have emerging, uh, viruses or you have changing viruses, uh, it's very difficult to go through the entire process in a short period of time to get a commercial vaccine. But in the case of uh, prescription platform vaccines, uh, you can change those genes out very quickly and have a vaccine within within weeks compared to years that you would on a commercial side. I'm not, I'm not saying commercial is bad. I'm just saying sometimes speed is important when you're fighting disease and being able to... Uh, accommodate that to the veterinarian and the producer is essential in protecting the health of animals. So given my background in pharmacy, I am familiar with this conversation. It's, you know, something we, I learned throughout school, um, like with clinical trials and speeding things up and getting, you know, that uh, quicker process through the regulation. And so it's something to me that kind of like you and everyone at Medgene, I think you instantly think, gosh, like how amazing that we could have time on our side instead of against it. Um, but I think sometimes, you know, when you don't, you aren't immersed in kind of that conversation and, and the day to day of, of what goes into this production and, and kind of the process, sometimes you can hear um, the words, like you said, you know, you could have a vaccine within weeks. And I think people can hear that and get a little bit scared. So I kind of, I want to ask you a hard question, but I want to drive back to what we talked at the beginning. Can you just, you know, speak to that from even still the regulation that is going into even this shortened timeline process, maybe just to reassure people who hear that and think, well, is it still safe? Like, are this, is still being studied or is it just being pushed through? Um, and, and the answer is, it's not being pushed through. That's that's for sure. Uh, so I go back to what I said before, which is to get to the able to produce this in our facility. It took us years, years to go through the regulatory process of getting uh, a, this prescription platform approved. In other words, we had to complete a complete licensed vaccine in the platform to be able to then move towards uh, swapping out those genes of interest. The thing that you have to, that I like people to think about is that Keurig machine again, which was basically our entire process that got approved. And that manufacturing process stays the same all the time. It's the same every time we put a vaccine through our manufacturing facility the only thing that's different is that gene of interest. So the, 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 uh, the gene of interest is one of those that, you know, scientific research shows that it is the protective epitope or the, or the thing that we need in the vaccine to protect the animal. And then we're able to take that gene, insert it into our platform and use the same manufacturing process that's been shown to provide a pure, safe, and potent vaccine. And we use that same process to produce a, vac a vaccine with a different gene in it. I think one of the things that really surprised me when I was on your website was 
all of the different, not just the different types of vaccines, but all the different species that you serve from, we've said cattle a lot, uh, swine, but then you mentioned wild animals, which can include deer and rabbits um, and maybe even someday maybe companion animals. Uh, So can you speak to kind of what different species you guys are involved in and what those vaccines look like for them? Yeah, the the good thing or the neat thing about this uh, platform is it, it, it is very flexible. In other words, we can we can help many species out. So in the case of rabbits, we have a rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus vaccine. Um, that disease was uh, was introduced into the U.S. in about 2018 and didn't have a solution. It, and it kills rabbits, right? It's it's a hemorrhagic disease that kills rabbits. And we, along with the CVB, needed to help find a solution to the vaccine problem there. And and uh, we're very proud to have that vaccine in the market. It's very effective. Uh, We've done a lot of our challenge work and our duration of immunity points to a highly effective vaccine that saves rabbits. Now, in deer, we have the same thing. We have a a, a hemorrhagic disease vaccine for deer for cervid. Uh, Again, that highly effective uh, saves saves animals um, in the deer farm community. So, the flexibility and the power of the of the prescription platform or the platform vaccines goes beyond just the cattle and the pigs. Uh, and it can go beyond that too. It can go into, we, you know, it could go into birds. It could go into um, companion animals. We haven't gone into those species at this time, but it has the flexibility where it could be done. Gosh, as you're talking, Gary, I just think, Dr. Gary, excuse me. I just keep thinking um, you guys are like a real David and Goliath story in the vaccine world. I think you guys are doing some really great things. And like Tara said, you're kind of revolutionizing, which is cool um, because you guys are a smaller company. And sometimes we associate, you know, having to have those numbers to make an impact or a difference. And I think you guys are really proving that, um, you know, that necessarily isn't always true. So one thing that I think we have missed out of this conversation so far is um, a third party that is involved in vaccines a lot. Um, you know, Tara and I always like to talk about vaccine conversations and the responsibility, you know, we have as producers and the stewardship around them. And obviously you have already alluded a little bit to the responsibility you guys are bringing, you know, from the manufacturing and kind of um, innovation side of it. But the other really important part is the veterinarian. Um, So can you kind of talk about your guys' role with, um, you know, veterinarian professionals across the large animal um, industry? Uh, I I sure can. And I think um, in the, in the name prescription, uh, platform vaccines, uh, the prescription part is dependent upon the veterinarian. So we engage with the veterinarian as our primary point of focus in the livestock industry because it is really, uh, uh, this platform provides the veterinarian with the opportunity to choose what goes in the vaccines that go into the animals that he, is, that he or she is caring for. Uh, and, and that's important and that's important because uh, the veterinarian is the key person who manages those those health issues that come up, and and they have the best opportunity to choose what goes in there. Our role as Medgene is a prescription manufacturer is to assist the veterinarian to provide him with the information of what is available, her, him or her, with the information that is available that would be helpful to put in a vaccine that they could use 
in the herds that they care for. Yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back to the very beginning conversation I feel like we were having about like regulation and oversight. I think that's a part of the conversation um, that often gets like missed as well is that, you know, farmers, ranchers are not just out here like prescribing things themselves or doing things themselves, but the veterinarian is crucial. I mean, I know on our dairy, a veterinarian comes out once a week and, you know, is prescribing all of our medications, setting up all our vaccine protocols. If there is any change in the protocols, like they are fully in charge of that. And then like working through that with, you know, all of our staff. Uh, And so they really are crucial to making sure that, you know, you can create something in a lab, but like, it's like the follow through of exactly how it's going to actually play out, um, administering it to those animals. Um, So I'm glad that we are able to kind of highlight them. One thing I've been glad that you kind of continually done throughout this conversation, and I don't know if you knew you were doing this or not, but, you know, you have pointed out some very specific diseases that we're up against. And I love that because I think it serves as a pretty strong reminder of like the implications of we do, um, you know, shift to kind of this, if we were ever to shift to this um, kind of consumer conversation around like, you know, removing vaccines, which I even hate to say, because I think it's such a scary, scary future to envision. But there is a lot of, you know, fear consumers have about vaccines. And so I love to be able to remind them, like, these are real implications we're dealing with. And they have like, really severe consequences, not just for, you know, as we've mentioned, the the animal livestock industry that ends up like on our plate, but even out in the wild, you know, these animals that are just, um, you know, not even domesticated. And so I just love that you're able to provide this like real tangible, um, not scary outlook, but like this, these are the things that are out there and these are the pro and the benefit of vaccine. And that's why we need them. So thank you for kind of bringing, I think that reality that, um, sometimes we need that lens through to, to, talk about a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, it's not new that animals have viruses and bacteria and diseases. It's not a new idea. Um, and that's always been uh, the veterinarian's battle to manage those diseases and manage the health of, uh, of those animals. And what MedGene is trying to do is bring some innovation into the way that they're able to do that and the way that the, um, the producers can look to in the future to be able to control some of the things that or be able to manage some of the problems that exist within those herds. Um, so to me, I, I think vaccines are more of the future, more of being able to uh, prevent rather than treat. Uh, if you remember... Uh, it wasn't that long ago, I would say less than five years ago, where the big topic of the consumer was antibiotic usage in animals and how that needed to be reduced. But even then, you know, even with conscious reduction of the use of antibiotics, you still can't stop it because otherwise you destroy the health of your of the animals that you use for companions, for food, for you know, you, you destroy their health. And I, I don't think that's a, that's a good, a good plan for anyone. Yeah. I think that is, as we're kind of closing things up here, I think that's a really good reminder of like how far we've come and the importance of vaccines. Like this is not a singular topic. You can't look at vaccines like in a vacuum. You have to be considering all the other factors, which include, you know, that we want to reduce antibiotic use, that we want to ensure animal welfare, like all of these things work together to are really important. And even on that note, like we haven't even said the word sustainability, which is shocking because that is something Natalie and I talk (laughs) about so much, but 
animal welfare is sustainability, preventing uh, infection, disease, preventing animal, you know, the mortality of animals is sustainability. Like keeping that animal as healthy as possible is actually crucial for all of those just different factors. And so they really like all play together in um, this conversation. And so I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Bosch, for coming on today and really sharing your you know, expertise with us. It has been a truly fascinating conversation and um, really exciting things happening in this space. So I appreciate you sharing them with us. Um, I know our community will love it and be engaged in this. And so a little bit more uh, this episode, again, was sponsored by Medgene. It is a U.S. animal vaccine company out of South Dakota. So if you are on the producer side of things and in the animal ag industry and industry and interested in learning more, you can find them at medgenelabs.com, which we will also link in the show notes. And if you are a food curious consumer, uh, feel free to head over there too. You know, knowledge is power. And the more you learn about this, the more you understand, like the less fear there is around it. And so this would be a really great resource to learn more about vaccines and what they mean to you as a consumer. So with that, thank you so much, Dr. Bosch. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.